But first, Vancouver City Council has voted to support the elimination of no pets clauses when it comes to rental leases. And joining me to talk a bit more about that is Pete Fry, a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Fry, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. So what was actually being discussed here? Well, so this was actually an advocacy motion that came out of our Renters Advisory Committee, which is a a citizen board uh, that comes up with recommendations and uh, discusses issues uh, germane to renters in our city. So they had asked uh, Councillor Swanson and I, who uh, sit on on the as liaisons, council liaisons to that committee, to put forward this motion from the membership. And I'm happy to say it was unanimously supported at council. and uh, enthusiastically as well. Is this something as a councillor that you hear a lot uh, from uh, constituents with concerns about this? Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, what's interesting actually is we've been hearing, because, you know, most of what we do is is talking about uh, developments and rezoning applications and alike. And we've increasingly been hearing from uh, developers of of 100% rental properties that they're actually uh, adding a pets, allowing pets as, as sort of a value-added piece to it uh, because they recognize that it's it's a demand uh, and that that tenants who are guardians of pets often make better tenants. They are more responsible. They're more sort of grateful for a space that allows pets. They take good care of their uh, their, their rentals and their pets. And, uh, and it, what's, what we've very specifically identified at the city is that uh, that pet-friendly buildings increase sort of social connectivity, and and in in our city in particular, we have a real problem with social isolation, um, and it, it it affects how people interact, and it affects how people feel about themselves and their physical and mental health, and so we know um, through compelling evidence that it actually improves outcomes for folks and makes people happier and more connected. So. Uh, the motion itself, though, even though it did pass and got a lot of support, this isn't something that the city actually, it's not the city's jurisdiction. So what do you actually do now or what is the next step in trying to make this an actual change? Well, I mean, I think it's, it sends a signal. This is, this is an advocacy motion and ultimately um, the responsibility would, would fall in the province to amend the Resident Tenancy Act. Um, now, Ontario has done a similar thing in 2008 and they amended their RTA to allow uh, to prohibit no pet clauses in rental agreements, and uh, and it's been successful. And it hasn't really resulted in a, a huge amount of destroyed properties or anything like that. It still allows landlords to remedy um, if 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 your dog or cat or ferret or whatever destroyed your property uh, or the rental property, they can still f- pursue that in, in in court and 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 some kind of arbitration, but. But it does not allow an arbitrary sort of prohibition. And um, as much as, as you know, and, and I think what, what it comes down to, I mean, so as, as a council now that we are advocating this, and I know Port Moody had put forward a motion at the Union of BC Municipalities that will be discussed at our executive this fall. Uh, so I think the more momentum and the more folks who come out and speak to this will be more compelling for the province to amend the RTA to support this. One of the things that we know from the Ontario example is that that oftentimes the, the the concerns around pet destruction, you know, obviously there there are there are plenty of cases where pets have destroyed apartments or basement suites or what have you. But as an evidence based policy, it doesn't really hold up. Uh, we have just as many sort of issues with people who like to um, deep fry food or or barbecue uh, or smoke or people who, who throw parties. Uh, 
who caused more damage. Uh, and, and, and it's hard to correlate the evidence to just sort of put a blanket out there. And when you talk about what's been done in some other provinces, uh, such as Ontario, uh, I could be wrong. I thought the, the rules in Ontario were for city-owned rentals, but didn't actually force, say, landlords who have a, a basement suite or a unit in their building, uh, didn't uh, that they weren't part of that as well. Would you like to see that in BC, though, that it, that it covers all rentals? Yeah, that's the intent. It, it's, it's The intent here is for the, the Residency Act. And I believe... Um, that the Ontario example covers all rentals, not just uh, government-owned rentals. What about the argument that could be made from homeowners or landlords that have rental suites? And again, probably talking more about rentals within smaller homes or or suites, uh, if somebody has allergies or has fears. Yeah, I mean, those those are, I mean, if somebody has allergies uh, and they're, they're renting a, an apartment that was previously home to a pet there. I mean, there's an obligation to provide a clean apartment and, and that, that would be, I would assume a consideration, you know, and as much as, as people often suffer adjacencies, for instance, I mean, I've had a woman calling me about barbecuing issues and, and her neighbors in the building, too many of them barbecue and, and, and she finds the smoke intolerable and stuff. And those are kind of challenges with just living in close, close proximity to folks. And those are kind of issues that, Hopefully, folks can work out on their own and come to an understanding. Um, as far as fear, I, that's a, that's a hard. One. I mean, that's a very difficult kind of. It's um, a difficult issue to navigate because people have have fears around all sorts of things. Some of them are rational, some of them are irrational. Um, but it's really difficult to navigate what what some people may find fearsome can oftentimes, and not specifically in the case of pets per se, but can oftentimes really verge into issues of, of, of you know, the, the charter guaranteed rights of expression of um, oneself. So, for instance, some people are afraid of, of people who might identify as LBGQT+. Um, we, 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 it's, a, it's a very slippery slope when we start talking about what makes some people afraid of other people or other things and how we manage that. And I'm not discounting people's legitimate fears, but clearly um, that can't be a, a grounds for prohibition, especially without evidence. Right. But, but I, I mean, a fear of animals is something very different if somebody has been attacked by a dog. And I'm using the example of, say, you live in a home and you rent out the basement. You've been attacked by a dog or you have a, a very serious allergy to fur. Uh, would you then be called? Would you be called out? Would you would you get into some kind of trouble if you did not rent that suite based? You, you had a no pet policy. Uh, it's a good question. I know that there's, there is, um, there are, for instance, in the Ontario example, and this would have to be sort of nuanced in the legislation, but in the Ontario example, there are abilities to get around the no pets prohibition for specific things like allergies. And presumably, I, I guess, a, you know, a, a phobia would probably count in that same kind of category. Um, but it, 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 it does allow for a little bit of discretion in that. I would expect similarly it would be here. All right. And as you said, then, this now goes, uh, it would need to be changed by the province of the Residential Tenancy Act. Any idea on a timeline or or when you would like to see this addressed? Well, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm a city councilor, not not an MLA, so it's hard to say. I mean, we're in an election. I don't even know what what the results of this election will look like. If this is an issue uh, that that candidates are hearing on on the hustings, 
when they're talking to, to folks if, if they're hearing a lot of this and if there's a will to, to, to deal with this. Um, so it's a bit soon to say. What we said today, though, as a city of Vancouver, is we sent a clear signal as the council that we, we, we support this and other councils are stepping up and saying the same. So I think um, our provincial counterparts are probably paying attention. Um, I know there's been support from housing advocates uh, across the board. Um, and, you know, and, and I would add that, you know, like a lot of developers are now sort of embracing the idea of pet-friendly buildings because it's a good business decision. It's, it's, they actually make great tenants. And, you know, the exceptions to the rule, sure, but you'll have bad tenants no matter what. Um, there'll always be a proportion of people who just are irresponsible and selfish. And um, I don't think that that's, that's necessarily the rule. It's just a, it's a statistical inevitability. All right. Uh, Councillor Fry, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, we were talking about this earlier with Richard Zussman during his uh, daily debrief on what's happening with the B.C. election, talking about some comments that were made by Liberal candidate Laurie Thronas. It happened during a candidate's meeting. It was a Zoom call for uh, an all-candidates debate in the riding of Chilliwack, Kent. Take a listen to his answer to the question, is it right for the government to provide free contraception to everyone? other thing that I feel about this is that it contains a whiff of the old eugenics thing where, uh, you know, poor people shouldn't have babies. And so we can't force them to have contraception. So we'll give it to them for free. And maybe they'll have fewer babies. So there will be fewer poor people in the future. And to me, that contains an an odor that I don't like. And so uh, I don't really support what the NDP is doing there. uh, and that's uh, that's my answer. Now, the Liberal leader, Andrew Wilkinson, did on Twitter following uh, those comments uh, becoming uh, being shared and being made more public, I did say that is not the position of the party and that he would be speaking with Laurie Thronas the next time about this, the next time they speak as well. Jess, Joe Hall has tweeted out that these comments are appalling and that they don't represent BC Liberal values. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Michelle Fortin, Executive Director of Options for Sexual Health. Michelle, thank Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for making this a part of your show, Jill. Uh, well, it just seems like that answer is so out of touch. What was your response or is your response hearing that? Um, you know, I think out of touch is a very uh, good way to describe it. I was initially quite shocked just hearing it in 2020 on the radio. And then quite honestly, when I realized who it was uh, coming from, Lori Thronis has uh, you know, continued to reveal that his belief systems are not reflective of most British Columbians. And uh, I'm just shocked and amazed that he continues to be supported by the BC Liberals um, as an incumbent um, running in this election. Uh, he also said uh, during that meeting, again, it was a Zoom all candidates uh, debate, uh, that while he doesn't have a problem with contraception, he doesn't see it as a priority. Uh, d- to many people, even though this is an idea that the plan or idea is to provide pre- uh, free contraception to everybody, mm-hmm. uh, but it really is, uh, I would I would suggest, uh, it is a woman's issue and, and it affects more women and women's freedom to choose and control over fa- family planning. Uh, and it it almost seems as though uh, he's saying, well, he is saying that that's not a priority. 
Uh, certainly. And, you know, what we did over the last year was actually reached out to folks in our um, almost 60 clinics across the province. And we had folks say, is this something that's important to you? What I think is interesting is of the over 4,500 surveys um, or petition signatures we got back, almost 50% were people that would be considered male. And so, well, indeed, we identify most often, you know, that women are the people that are going to be um, carrying babies. That doesn't happen all the time. Um, and uh, the reality is, is that this is about choice. It's about being able to plan when and if you get pregnant, when and if you want to have a family. I mean, one of the things that we are supportive of is people having healthy children at a time that makes sense for them. And that is both for, um, uh, you know, all partners in that relationship. So, I mean, we, we definitely could suggest that this is, it is not a feminist perspective, let's put it that way. I also uh, still don't quite get what he was, the, the connection he was trying to make, uh, saying that it contains a whiff of the old eugenics where poor people shouldn't have babies. Right. So there is this um, historical connection. Um, uh, so Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood many, many years ago, um, was thought to support eugenics. Um, and thought that it was racially motivated, which um, is tied to class often. And in fact, she worked with um, people and leaders in the black community to make sure that um, there were clinics in black communities as there were the same number in non-black communities. So I think that's what he's hearkening back to, which is like so far back in the past. I mean, if we haven't learned that at this point, family planning should be in the hands of the people that are the ones that could get pregnant, um, then I don't know why we're having this conversation. And I mean, if you want to talk eugenics and going into the history books, Tommy Douglas was a proponent of eugenics. I would like to think that we have moved on from that and we've now in 2020 realized that birth control and contraceptives are important and have nothing to do with eugenics. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the biggest thing for us at at Options for Sexual Health is that it is about choices. This is not about morality. This is about, you know, healthy sexual opportunities for folks that don't have the consequences of pregnancy unless they want them. You know, so I don't even want to buy into his um, uh, statements around eugenics. I really think we need to focus on choice. And what I think is interesting is that both the NDP and the Greens have put this in their platforms because it is 2020. And we know that there are about 190,000 unplanned pregnancies every year across this country that cost us about $320 million. So the economics actually are in favor of contraception being universally accessible and free. And how important is it, do you think, that, that contraception be free? Um, I I think, quite honestly, that for Options for Sexual Health and many other proponents, it it should be part of our right and access. It is uh, a medical issue. Um, And like I said, the cost of unplanned pregnancies is so great that if we could just make um, contraception accessible to folks, we would have a lot fewer um, issues around um, medical procedures, around folks having to make choices 
that aren't the best ones for them, um, predominantly young women having to leave school. And do you think there's there's a bigger issue here in that some people will look at this and say, OK, it's it's a it's a medical conversation. It's a, a conversation about contraception. Uh, to me, though, there is the bigger issue in that in many cases we're, we're having conversations that are dominated by men. And we're talking about what is largely women's bodies, bodies, like you said, these these are the, the part the people in society who either have children or don't do the physical work of doing that. And, and when we get to it, we're talking talking about controlling that part of the population. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that that's my issue around this not being moral, about a moral issue, that this is about um, uh, a medical issue. And the reality is there is no part of, um, a, you know, someone who has a penis, their body is not controlled in any way by our medical system. And yet contraception, which is predominantly used by people with, um, people with vulvas, identified often as women, um, there's control around them. So um, I, I completely agree that this is uh, an important issue. But if we firmly place it in uh, the medical realm, we wouldn't be having this argument. It is because it is a moral and social historical issue around control that we're still having this conversation in 2020. I thought we were better than this. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. Uh, I know it was short notice. Thanks for agreeing to come on the show and talk about this. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Taking a bit of a break from talking about the B.C. election. Uh, This is a story that I saw earlier today in the Globe and Mail, and it has to do with school district number 43 in Coquitlam. And in the past, having dismissed critics of the Confucius Institute programming, which delivers things like extracurricular Mandarin instruction and cultural programming, uh, but an institute that was backed and partly funded by the Chinese Communist government. There's been a bit of a shift in what it is called and a bit of a back and forth between the school district and the institute. But let's bring in Brad West, who is the mayor of Port Coquitlam, to talk a little bit more about this. Mayor West, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, You tweeted out the article in the Globe and Mail and called it a bombshell. Why do you call it a bombshell? Well, I think what's interesting here is the revelation of the contract that's been signed uh, between the Confucius Institute uh, and uh, the education centres, whether it be, in this case, the School District 43 or others, um, that, uh, you know, the details of those contracts and and what it obligates uh, those entities that end up hosting a Confucius Institute uh, to do, and there are things that, uh, quite frankly, have no place in this uh, in this country. Uh, things like uh, monitoring monitoring on behalf of the Confucius Institute, which should actually be understood as the Chinese government, monitoring on their behalf uh, local you know political reactions and uh, local political climate. Um, you know, allowing Beijing to have uh, control over a number of. Uh, uh, the pieces of, of what's actually taught in these institutes. I mean, these are the type of things that people have raised the alarm bell uh, about before and, and have been told, oh, no, 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 you're, you're making things up. And now we see that, in fact, it's right there in the contract. And so with having the Confucius Institute sending money for things like bilingual programs for supplies, does that give the impression that that they're expecting more in return? Or what is the issue you see with that? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I would just say, Jill, do you know many people who give millions of dollars out of the goodness of their heart, <laughs> particularly a foreign government? I mean, think about it. Why would a foreign government, particularly one um, as, uh, as horrific as the government of China in terms of human rights abuses and as having a, such a well-documented desire to expand its influence, why on earth would they ever want to fund public education in another country? And the answer is obvious, because it's a, it's a vehicle by which they can expand their, their influence uh, and grow their, tho- their uh, soft power in that country. Now, the Confucius Institute is one vehicle that that, uh, that, that takes. Uh, you know, there are others, but uh, certainly they ne- it needs to be understood in that context. Um, you know, there's very little in this world where you get something for nothing. What do you think they're getting, though? Well, I think what they're they're getting is influence and in, in relationship building. Um, look, uh, if you do any reading on this subject, you you understand that uh, the government of China is in this for uh, the, the long term. They're playing a long game. Uh, you know, it's it's the same answer to the question the question that was posed to me last year. Oh well, why why would the uh, government of China fund uh, in part the Union of BC municipalities? Uh, and the answer is because they're gaining influence, they're building relationships, uh, they're expanding uh, their power, uh, and that has a number of things that uh, you know a, a number of things to their advantage to do that. Um, and Canada is not the only country in which they're doing this, uh, but we are a focal point. Uh, and again, my view is we just need to be a hell of a lot less naive about this stuff. Uh, this idea that, oh, no, it's, you know, they just are doing it because they really see the, the value in, you know, in, in whatever, I guess. <laughs> and it's some sort of benevolent act is is just wrong. Um, and, and so we need to be much more uh, astute about what we're dealing with. Uh, and, you know, and more to the point, quite frankly, I don't think uh, we should be expecting a foreign government to fund our public education. I mean, just on the face of it, the idea is ridiculous. Um, you know, but again, I think particularly when you're talking about the government of China, with its very well-documented and well-coordinated attempts to expand its influence into our our own country's decision-making, uh, coupled with their horrific uh, record of human rights abuses around the world. Let's remember, this is a, a government that is holding two of our fellow citizens hostage in God knows what conditions right now and has, you know, upwards of 3 million Uyghurs uh, interned in modern-day concentration camps. I mean, it is the type of evil that we hope to never to see in this world again. And and the idea that we would be having, you know, this type of relationship with them uh, taking their money is, to me, wrong.
And it does, it does, uh, when you talk about uh, Michael uh, Spavor and Michael Kovrig uh, and, and what's happening uh, with the detention of those two Canadians, uh, also here we have a country that has come out saying that if Canada uh, even considers or gives asylum to people fleeing Hong Kong, uh, they better watch out. Uh, so it does seem strange that on the one hand, while this country is bullying, for lack of a better word, you're right, there, there are school districts that are, that are taking funding. Uh, we're seeing some other places, uh, Toronto, uh, New Brunswick pulling back from this, saying that they're not going to continue with uh, this, uh, the Confucius uh, teaching. Would you like to see a rule or something done in BC uh, along that line? Uh, Absolutely. I hope that this is put to the provincial political parties during this election. Will you commit to undertaking uh, a review of the activities of the Confucius Institute in this entire arrangement in the province of British Columbia? You know, in my opinion, it should be with an eye to, to booting them out of here the same way they've done in New Brunswick. Um, you know, the reality is uh, this district is one of very few where they still operate. And you can change the name or whatever, like as if that fools anybody. I don't even know why that would even be suggested as as having accomplished anything or uh, or addressing people's concerns. So you gave it a new name. So what? The reality is uh, whether it's, you know, BCIT where they've been kicked out of, whether it's the Toronto School District, whether it's the entire uh, province of New Brunswick, uh, whether it's a number of academic institutions throughout the United States, the U- United Kingdom, and in Europe, uh, you know, they're being booted out of these places because these concerns that people are raising are, in fact, well-founded, are, in fact, the reality of the situation. And so uh, I think it's absolutely essential that in British Columbia, uh, whoever forms the next provincial government uh, commits to dealing with this issue because uh, we are now standing alone as one of the few places where this is still allowed to happen and it creates uh, exposure and a whole number of uh, very negative things that I think uh, residents of uh, our province are rightly concerned about. Uh, you mentioned the name change. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that as well, because there was some discussion that uh, the changing of the name of the Confucius Institute to show that it was pulling away or that it was independent of the Chinese Communist government, which uh, seemed at face value to be a bit ludicrous as well. But yeah. but what do you I mean, what do you think of that argument being, oh, no, it's it's a totally different structure now? It's an absolute farce. And I'm embarrassed for the people who make that argument. I mean, what do they think people are stupid? <laughs> I mean, look, there, the reality is there is very little to nothing that happens uh, that emanates out of China without the government being involved in uh, having uh, some form of control over. I mean, it, it is an authoritarian, brutal state. And, and so the idea that, oh, no, this is a new name and, and you know, and is, is separate. It's just not the reality. It's not the facts. And again, I think it's a a farce and embarrassment for anyone to make that argument. All right. Mayor West, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on. Let's go back to what we were planning to speak about this half hour of the program. And just a reminder, we'll have more on that at the top of the hour. On a much lighter note, it was the Great BC Shakeout today. This as communities right throughout the province are getting ready, being prepared in the event of a big earthquake in this region. Joining me to talk about this is Brent Gilley, Associate Professor of Teaching in the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmosphere. 
atmospheric sciences. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's uh, p- potentially lighter news. <laughs> that, true. You know what? As I said that, I, I was thinking, oh, uh, talking about earthquakes has suddenly become the lighter news of the day. But yeah, that's a bad, a bad <laughs> it's sign. It's not a great sign. But thankfully, we're, uh, we're talking about the uh, potential of this and being prepared, which is always a good thing. So right. what, what, kind of, what do we need to learn and what do we need to do? And, and why is the great BC shakeout so important? Um, it's fantastic because it gives a chance to practice uh, earthquake drills, and it's really what the, the aim is, and get some awareness around earthquake preparedness. Because we, living in British Columbia, we are in an earthquake zone. We are very likely to live it through a very large earthquake some point in our lifetime. Um, we're not that likely to be killed by it, so people who are really worried about it should, should not panic. But you're, you're likely to have to deal with the aftermath. And so the awareness is really important. I think that's one of the main reasons. Uh, have things changed in that? I know even in the building where, where we are, I'm one of the, the few people that we are physically still in the building. So we had the big announcement on the, oh, the PA system earlier today about, uh, you know, getting into a safe place. Have, has anything changed as far as what we're supposed to do when an earthquake hits? Um, you mean in... In the perspective of COVID times? Well, actually, well, yes, COVID times plus just what we're supposed to do, because I know in the past it was go to a door jam, then it was no go under a big piece of furniture. So it seems like we we have kind of tweaked that a little bit. Yeah, we have. And there's there's things that have happened that sort of um, make people realize things are a bad idea. So if if you're in an archway in a building, that's actually a strong place, which is where the doorway idea came from. But the problem with a doorway is they usually have doors in it. And if you're holding... Uh, your hands against the sides of the door, the door's going to be swinging back and forth. You could actually get hurt by being hit by the door. So we encourage people, the best advice is to find a heavy furniture to get under. So a desk or a table, those are your best bets. And how long do you stay there? Uh, Until the shaking stops. Uh, And then you get out of the building as quickly as you can. Uh, We have a saying in geology, it's it's not earthquakes that kill people, it's buildings that kill people. Um, And this is really the problem that the, if the building is going to collapse or be unstable, you want to be outside where you know you're going to be safe. Because I guess there's the the, the concern about aftershocks too. If it's a big enough quake that you, you're very stressed out about it and frightened by it, you kind of, I don't know if you would probably feel safer under a big desk, but like you said, the, port, and the important thing is to get out. Yeah, yeah. And the reason they, they ask you to shelter in place and duck cover hold is because um, if it's a big enough earthquake, you'll have trouble walking. Um, and so you don't want to be trying to fight your way to the to the door when there's things falling around you inside. And that that's one of the dangers um, in the actual earthquake. If you've ever seen videos or they even have a sample trailer that they use sometimes where basically if you imagine a kitchen, everything in the cupboards will come out. All the bookcases will fall down. All the furniture will be falling over. So you want something big and heavy that will stay stable like a table or a desk. And I know everybody wants to know when this is going to happen. Have we we gotten any better at forecasting or predicting? We're way better. I mean, I can guarantee you there will be an earthquake here in the next 1,500 years. (laughs) (laughs) You you heard it here first, folks. Um, But uh, the problem with it is it's just really hard to predict, right? I mean, you've got these gigantic slabs of rock that are pushing against each other, there's multiple different sizes of earthquakes that can happen. They happen at different places in the crust. Um, so we, we, when we look back in the history, we think there's been about eight-ish in the last 4,000 years. When you do the math, it comes out to around every 350 years, but it's not like clockwork. Sometimes it's as long as 1,500. 
years between earthquakes. Sometimes it's only 300. And the last big one that we know of, which we get from native oral legends and from all sorts of uh, other lines of evidence, was about 300 years ago. So we're, quote, you, but we could also live our whole lives and so could our grandchildren and their grandchildren without having an earthquake. So the thing to do is prepare. We've talked a lot about seismic upgrades and new building, uh, the codes for new buildings, uh, though. How are we as far as uh, vulnerabilities with some of the older buildings? Well, I mean, that that is the large part of the problem that that the 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 codes have upgraded a couple times over the years. Um, Generally, if things are an older building, it's not as good. However, wood framed buildings are generally pretty good. So generally, the houses in Vancouver are good no matter how old they are. Where we start to have problems is where you have brick buildings without a reinforced steel in it. Um, Those are generally more problematic, although many of those have been upgraded as well. Um, it, but it, it, is, it is certainly something to worry about, and, and usually older buildings are the things we concern about. I know at UBC we still have a few buildings that have not been upgraded yet, and uh, there's just the long process of going through and doing it. Same with uh, schools in Vancouver as well, for example. What about the, the issue of liquefaction? Yeah, so everybody likes to pick on Richmond for liquefaction, but there's actually <laughs> little pockets all over the lower mainland where the ground is not quite as stable as you would want it to be. Um, and it's not, um, it's not necessarily like a death sentence or something, you know, that there's a higher risk that a building collapse in those areas. But again, if we're talking about a one or two story house, um, they would probably just sort of crumble a little and then you wouldn't be able to live in them, but you, you might be okay afterwards. But there's pockets, like I say, all over the lower mainland, uh, little little bits here and there that liquefaction is definitely a problem. If you're interested in that, Google Christchurch earthquake and liquefaction, you'll find amazing photos. Uh, yes. Um, one other question. Every time we have a small tremor or we see earthquakes nearby, uh, people run and get their earthquake kits ready. We get the uh, reminder that we're supposed to be prepared. That's part of today's uh, exercise as well. Yeah. Uh, is it frustrating for somebody like you that studies this when every time we realize that many of us are not, in fact, prepared or doing any doing any of that, uh, the, the, the stuff that we do have control over? Um. A little. I mean, not really. I mean, I didn't have an earthquake kit for a little while. I mean, it's a fantastic Christmas gift that you can buy your family. And the earthquake companies, obviously, they like times like this where earthquakes are in the news. Or if there's been an earthquake, uh, they they sell out for six months. And then, again, people forget. But we just keep trying to remind people. There, There's actually a lot that the, the municipalities and the cities have been doing to prepare as well. Um, whether people know it or not, there is an evacuation zone near their house. Um, usually a school or a high school, um, where where they'll be directed to go if there is issues. All right. Well, it's always uh, timely and good advice and a reminder that the the BC, uh, the great shakeout took place today. Uh, Brett, thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about it. My pleasure.